I want us to read beginning in verse 23 down to chapter 11 in verse 1. And I'm going to stop briefly as we read through here just to draw your attention to a couple of things before I get to the meat or the heart of the message this morning. But we're continuing in this section of 1 Corinthians, our study in this section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 through 10 deal with meat that is offered to idols. It was something that was controversial in the first century. It's obviously not controversial today. But if you'll think of it as something that is controversial, something that the Scripture doesn't speak to directly, you should do this or you should not do that. And so it leaves it to the judgment of individuals to make related to the particular item that we're talking about. It's something controversial. One person has one opinion about it. Somebody else has another opinion about it. And God doesn't specifically tell us what we should do in the given area where the controversy exists. And so from chapters 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul is ultimately giving us six different questions that are to be asked uh, about how what you're doing affects other people. How does it affect other believers? How does it affect the unbelievers? And then you make your decision about whether to do something on the basis of how it impacts somebody else. That is antithetical to everything that we think in modern American society because we don't care what anybody else thinks. But the Apostle Paul says Christians cannot live that way. Christians have to live every day with the recognition that their lives impacts somebody else. Your testimony, your character, the things you do, the way you carry yourself impacts somebody else. And you are to be responsible before God to make sure that you're creating the right kind of environment, that you're drawing people to Jesus, you're not driving people away from Jesus. Notice he begins in verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now, if you've been with us in this study, you followed us along, you know that that phrase is almost identical to one that's found back in chapter 6 in verse 12. That little phrase, all things are lawful for me, was something that the Corinthians were using to justify what they were doing. That controversial issue, meat offered to idol in the first century, whatever it may be in our society, our 21st century society, what they were saying is, it's lawful for me. God doesn't forbid it. God doesn't tell me I can't do it. He's given me freedom and liberty to make this choice. All things are lawful for me. And that was how they were excusing themselves. All things are lawful for me, but he says not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but Paul says not all things edify. Verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now you begin to get a sense of what Paul is going to say to you. This is not just about you. This is about others. This is about how it affects others. And he's going to give you two illustrations. One where you're going to buy this meat at the market. The other where you've been invited to somebody's house to eat this meat. Notice what he says. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in, the, in all, the, all its fullness. In other words, he says, if you go down to the market 
And you see that the meat that's been offered to idols up there at the temple is less expensive and it's good meat and you want to purchase it, don't ask any questions about it. Just buy the meat, take it home, cook it up, enjoy it. In other words, you don't have to ask questions and create problems where there are no problems. You don't have to discuss things that don't need to be discussed. Purchase the meat, take it home, enjoy the meat. He says, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. That's a quote out of the psalm, one of the psalms. It's a quote that was used as a blessing. It's like giving the blessing on the food. Go buy the meat in the market. You don't have to ask whether it's been a sacrifice to idols or not. You don't have to ask where it came from. If it's a good price and you want to buy it and you have the money to buy it, purchase it. Don't make a big deal out of it. Take it home, cook it up, ask the blessing over it, and enjoy it. He goes on, verse 27. Here's the second illustration. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. So one day somebody says to you, I want you to come over to my house. Uh, we've got some fresh meat. Uh, we're going to be cooking up filet mignons and going to be cooking them out over the open fire and uh, we're going we're gonna to enjoy a delicious meal together, and I want you to be my guest. You're a Christian. I want you to be my, my guest and come to my house. I'm going to feed you. He says, go to their house. Sit down at the house. Enjoy the meal with them. Don't ask any questions about where the meat came, came from. You don't sit down at their table and say, oh, can I just ask you a quick question? I know this had to come from the market. Uh, did you get this from the place where they sell the meat that sacrificed idols? Don't ask any questions. Don't make a big deal out of something that nobody else is making a big deal out of. You don't have to know where the meat came from. Just eat it. But, verse 28, if anyone says to you, we don't know who the anyone is. Somebody else is sitting at this table. They're in the friend's house. Maybe they've been invited to a meal with the Christians who've come to eat. If anyone says to you, sitting at this table, says to you, This was offered to idols. Now he changes his advice. Do not eat. Why would that be true? For the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In other words, if you sit down and nobody's talking about where the meat came from and you're just enjoying a meal together and the fellowship that you have with your neighbors and your friends who've invited you, these obviously are unbelieving friends. If nobody says anything about the meat, you don't have to go into the house asking them where the meat came from. But if somebody sitting at the table says, oh, by the way, did you know that that meat was the meat that was offered to idols? He says, that changes what you do. Because now you know somebody has something in their conscience about that meat that affects them, that's caused them to bring that to your attention. He's not talking about another stronger believer who's trying to control what you do. He's talking about either an unbeliever or a younger, immature believer who's asking questions, who isn't where you are in your faith. He says, don't eat it. Give up your right to eat the meat. Just politely say thank you but I think I'm going to pass on the meat and just have a vegetable meal. Just enjoy the vegetables with you. And you do that for the conscience sake, not your own. If you ate the meat, you know it wouldn't hurt you. You know it wouldn't affect you, but you know that it's going to affect the other person, and it's the reason why they brought it up. 
It's the reason why they said something about it. Just ask the blessing over the food and enjoy the other things that are on the table. Verse 29, conscience, he says. I say, not your own. You're not violating your conscience here, but that of the other. Again, it's antithetical to everything we're taught in 21st century society. It doesn't matter what you think about what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what you think. And maybe there are times when that's the appropriate approach. But when it comes to the matter of something that's controversial, that has the potential of hampering somebody who's walking with God or hindering the advance of the gospel, he says, just don't do it. There's more important things than whatever it is that you want to exercise your liberty to involve yourself. Don't do it not for your conscience. Do it for the conscience of the other person. But then come two questions. And the two questions are difficult. The two questions are difficult because we don't know who's asking these questions. But it's generally assumed that these questions are coming from somebody who objects. And they say, what? You mean you're going to limit what you're doing because somebody else might be offended by it? He goes on with the questions. Most likely coming from an objector to Paul's advice not to eat the meat. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And so you see the idea? You sit down to eat the meat. You don't ask any questions about it. You eat it. But if somebody brings it up, calls it, calls it to your attention, you say, wait a minute. I, I don't think I'll have any meat tonight. I'll just eat the other things on the table and give thanks to God for those things. Because you don't want to offend the conscience of someone else. And somebody comes along and says, What? You mean I'm going to limit my freedom because he's not mature enough to take it? And Paul answers back in verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you want to know what the glory of God is? You want to know how you can glorify God? Verse 32, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. That's how you give glory to God. You don't give glory to God by exercising your liberty and your freedom in a controversial matter, causing somebody else to be offended by what you're doing. You glorify God when you withhold yourself and you give no offense, whether it's to the Jews, the Greeks, or somebody in the church. Don't give an offense, he says. Verse, 20, verse 33, there, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. Here I lives his life. I'm not living for just, well, I want some meat. I want to eat this meat. It looks good. It looks tasty. It's cooked perfectly. It's over a wood fire. It's got the taste to it. I got to have it. They got A1. Well, they didn't have A1 in that day. But they got the best things that can treat the meat. Paul says, you don't do that. Somebody has brought it to your attention. It means that it bothers them that you're about to eat this meat, 
and it would be better for you not to eat the meat than it would for you to be a person that offends this individual. Give no offense. That's how you glorify God in what you eat and you drink. You give no offense. Paul says, I live my life to please all men. Now, please understand something. When he says that, he's clear in the, in the book of Galatians that his message that he proclaims doesn't please all men. But his methods seek to please all men. I seek to create as few stumbling blocks, as few difficulties to trip over, as, as few oppositions, as, as little opposition as I can to please all men in all things, not seeking my own, not seeking my own, but the profit of many that they may be saved. And then he finishes in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Let's bow our heads together for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that in these next few minutes that you will speak to our hearts in ways that we will never forget. Father, that's going to take more than just me. That's going to take the power of your Spirit working upon our hearts bringing us to a place of conviction. And I pray that you will do that this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever been, as a child, made to sit at the table because there was something on your plate that your parents told you that you were going to eat and you could not leave the table until you ate it? Some particular food whether it was the texture of the food or it was the taste of the food or the color of the food or just your mind playing tricks on you, you were required to sit there until you ate some of what was on your plate. I remember hearing President, uh, former President uh, George H.W. Bush talking about broccoli. Apparently, when he was a child, his parents made him eat broccoli, and he hated eating broccoli. And now he's the president of the United States, and there's, there's some organization that's trying to get him to eat broccoli so that he'll advertise for them. It'll be an advertisement that you ought to eat broccoli, that it's healthy for you. And I'll never forget President Bush saying, I'm the president of the United States of America, and if I don't want to eat broccoli, I don't have to eat broccoli. <laughs> I'll never forget hearing him say it. When I was a boy growing up, it was English peas for me. You know, they come in a little pod. You have to break it open. You have to pull the peas out. And my mother loved to make English peas, and she would put them on my plate when I was a child. And when I would put even one in my mouth, I would begin to gag. <laughs> like I was going to throw up, I'd begin to gag and I would eat everything around, and I'd push those, peats, uh, those peas to the edge of my plate. I wanted nothing to do with those peas whatsoever. Just push them to the edge of my plate. I didn't want anything to do with them. And at the end, Mother knew what I was doing, and she'd pull them all back together, and she'd say, Davy, until you eat some of those peas, you will sit at this table. And I sat there sometimes 30 or 45 minutes till my gracious daddy intervened. I know that some of you are thinking to yourselves, this whole series of messages from chapters 8 to 10, 
This is your fifth message, Pastor, Pastor, about eating meat that's offered to idols. It's beginning to feel like those English peas. I'm tired of hearing about it. More than 70 verses are included from chapter 8 to 10. More than 70 verses from chapter 8 to chapter 10 dealing with this matter of eating meat that's been offered to idols. And some of you are sick of hearing about it. You've brought me to the table again and you've served it up and you're making me sit here and partake in it. But I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to think with me. Why is it so important that Paul talk about for 70 plus verses the matter of meat that's been offered to idols? And the answer to that question is that people's eternal souls are more important than the meat that we eat or anything else that we do that we have liberty to do that may be controversial or non-controversial. We have the privilege of being able to do. There is nothing else in life more important than the souls of men and women where they spend eternity. There is nothing more important. He finishes at the end of chapter 10 in verse 33. He says, that they may be saved. Does that sound familiar to something we read a little earlier? If you just look back a page in your Bible to chapter 9, and in chapter 9 where we talked earlier about Paul winning people to Christ, he says in verse 22, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things for all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. My whole life is about bringing others to Jesus. My whole life is about bringing others under the sound of the gospel. My whole life is about making sure that I win as many to Jesus as I can win. And it may seem like we're eating English peas yet again, but we're really being reminded that there is nothing that you do that's so important that you have a right to offend people and you have a right to put a stumbling block before the souls of men and women and to keep them in some fashion from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what it is, no matter how innocent it may seem, no matter how non-controversial it may be, what matters more than any of those things is that that person hear the gospel and that person have the working of the Spirit of God within them and that person come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. I was sitting this past week at a business meeting. I don't know how many exactly were there. Probably 20 to 30 people were there. I was invited to bring the invocation, and I'm always so thankful and privileged whenever I'm invited to do that. Some of the people that were in this business meeting I know so I know their relationship to Jesus Christ. I know that they're children of God. I know that they're ready to meet God. But I was sitting there with people that I wouldn't have the opportunity to spend much time talking to. Uh, only a few of them I was able to meet. But as I was thinking uh, and sitting there and looking at the people that were around me, I couldn't help but stop and begin to wonder about their eternal soul. 
They were about to deal with business that was extremely important. They were about to deal with business that mattered in the community. They were about to deal with business that had to be handled and might have been controversial at times, but they had to take care of that business. But I was sitting there in the midst of them. I was looking at those people that were around me, and I was thinking, where is she going to spend eternity? And where is he going to spend eternity? I left that meeting because I was only there for the invocation. And I went down to my car. It was parked out on the street. And I got in it. I began to drive home down Fifth Avenue. And my mind couldn't get off of those people that were sitting in that room. What if that woman dies today? What if that man dies today? And for the first time in some time, emotion welled up within me and tears rolled down my cheeks. As I began looking at the souls of those men and women and realizing that the business they were conducting was important, but it wasn't eternal. What they needed more than anything else was for someone to give them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can solve all of the problems that are around us. And thank God they work on those problems. We have to have people that do that. We need good people to do that. But the bottom line is, the church is here because there's something more important than just the business. The church is here because your soul matters. You matter to God. And your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. As I thought about those souls I couldn't help but think about some of the things that the Scripture says about people that are without Jesus Christ. And there were seven of them that I found. It says that they are under God's wrath. They are under God's wrath. People that don't know Jesus Christ I'm talking about are under God's wrath. John chapter 3 verse 17 says that they are condemned already. They're not waiting to be condemned. They are already condemned Ephesians chapter 2 says that they are children of wrath. They are under the wrath of God. They are in danger of hell. Probably the better word would be the lake of fire, but we'll use hell because it's the most common word by which we define the eternal punishment of those that are separated from God. But every breath they have brings them one breath closer to the danger of an eternal hell. And Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that after death there is the judgment. Luke chapter 16 gives us the story of two men, a rich man and a man named Lazarus, a poor beggar who ate the crumbs that fall from the, fell from the rich man's table. And then it tells us that they both died. And it tells us about the rich man. It says that in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment. Do you realize that everybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ is one heartbeat. They're one breath away from meeting God and his judgment and being separated from God forever. Thirdly, it tells us that they're spiritually dead. They're spiritually dead. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 and Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that they are dead in trespasses and sins. They're dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says that they're lost souls. They are lost souls. Luke chapter 15 gives us the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. 
And we're reminded of what Jesus said about himself. I have come to seek and to save those that are lost. They're lost in their sin. They're enslaved to sin. Romans 3, 9 and 3, uh, 6, 18 and 2 Timothy 2, 26. It says they've been taken captive. They are all under sin. They're all the enemies of God. Nobody likes to think of themselves in those terms. But Romans 5.10 says that when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. That's what we were before we were reconciled. We were the enemies of God. It says they are separated from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 and Romans 3.23 says our sin separates us from God. Do you hear what he says? Do you hear what the scripture says? People without Jesus are under God's wrath, in danger of hell. They're spiritually dead, lost souls, enslaved to sin, enemies of God, and separated from God. We sit around and we argue over whether we can eat meat that's offered to idols or not. We sit around and argue whether we can drink or not. We sit around and argue over these controversial issues as if our personal rights are so valuable and so important that we ought to be able to do what we want to do while people all around us are dying and going to hell. Have you stopped to think about what happens after death? Have you stopped to remember the penalty and the punishment that every man, woman, boy, and girl rejecting Jesus Christ has to pay forever and forever? I think one of the most striking passages is found in the Revelation, and I invite you to turn back there with me for a moment. Uh, Revelation, beginning in chapter 20, verse 11, speaking about the great white throne judgment. You, you realize that there's several judgments in the end times. One of them is the judgment seat of believers. That's not has nothing to do with whether you get into heaven or not. It has to do with the rewards that you receive or not. But the great white throne judgment is the final judgment of those who have failed to receive Christ as Savior. And I want you to listen to, to, to the words that are spoken to us by, by the revelator John. Listen to what he says. Listen, you'll be watching this unfold. You'll be looking as this unfolds. And while you'll have the mind of Christ in a way that you don't have it at this moment, I can't help but wonder if we won't see our friends and our family, our neighbors, the people we work next to, standing before God and how it might affect us. Notice verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose faith, the face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. That means you and me, the small ones, or the biggest names you can think of, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. By the way, you get your name written in the book of life when you trust in Jesus Christ. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. There is no hiding from God in death and Hades. Hades is the word for, for hell. It's the place of the, of the grave where the body goes, and it's the place of the eternal soul until the judgment for the lake of fire. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Oh, my. 
Oh my. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Where forever and forever and forever and forever and forever they have to pay the penalty of their sins forever. We argue about screens and we argue about music and we argue about whether it's too cold or it's too hot, whether the sermons are too long or they're too short. We fuss about not being able to get a parking spot up close. We complain about everything we do in life, not realizing that everything we say and everything we do is impacting those around us. Paul says, I please all men. Eating that meat is going to offend somebody's conscience and keep them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I just as soon never eat meat again, he says. I just soon never eat meat again that I had to be responsible for somebody going to an eternal hell. But moms and dads, you go home criticizing and complaining and griping about church and you wonder why your children have no interest in the things of God. You never read your Bible, you never pray. You never talk to your children about the things of God. You never talk to your children about the importance of walking with God. There's no reality to your faith in the presence of your children. You're just doing what you want to do because I want to do it. This is my day. I can do what I want to do. It's my life. I can do what I want to do. We never stop to think about how it's creating a roadblock or a stumbling block for so many people. It's causing them to stumble and keep from coming to faith in Jesus. Paul says, I want to glorify God. And glorifying God means making nothing of these controversial issues and setting them aside if need be, even if I have a right to do them, because what's more important is that they may be saved. That's what's more important, that they may be saved. When's the last time, moms, dads, you looked at your children? I'm not talking just about your children at home, your grown children. And you recognize there is a serious spiritual problem in your children's lives. And you became so broken over it because the reality is there are a lot of our children that grew up in the church that are as lost as the man on the street downtown. They simply don't know Jesus Christ. They have no conviction about the things of God. They have no drawing of the Spirit of God in in their lives. They have no desire for the things of God in their hearts because they don't have God. They don't have the salvation of God. They're not born again. They're not even children of God. And we live with, a oh, well, they did something when they were a child that they can't even remember and they have no concern about and aren't interested in anymore. And yet somehow we are satisfied to let that go on. Because we don't care enough about the people who don't know Jesus Christ. I think one of the saddest interviews I heard, I copied it and brought it. I read it in the news this past week. This is a recent article. It's about Arnold Schwarzenegger, age 75, and Danny DeVito, age 78. They're being interviewed by the Interview Magazine. That's the name of the magazine, Interview Magazine. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, the actor, maintains 
that heaven is some fantasy. He goes on to say, it reminds me of, how, of Howard Stern's question to me. Tell me, governor, what happens to us when we die? I said, nothing. You're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is an expletive liar. I said, we don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. And DeVito chimes in, we deteriorate. He goes on, except in some fantasy, when people talk about I will see them again in heaven, it sounds so good, but the reality is that we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. And listen to this statement he's about to make. Because whether he recognizes it or not, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whether he recognizes it or not, he knows there's something missing from his life. Listen to it. He says, I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. I don't. He continues, because I will expletive, miss the expletive out of everything. By the way, they're not expletives in the article. I mean, there are ex expletives, but the word expletives. I didn't think it was appropriate to read what was there. To sit with you here, he says, that will one day that, that will one day be gone he said and to have fun and to go to the gym and to pump up and to ride my bike on the beach to travel around to see interesting things all over the world what the expletive and then Danny DeVito responds life it's the best life it's the best you know if there's anything in that article I agree with it's that last statement if all you have to look forward to is this life, this life is the best you have. And you better enjoy it. You better get all the gusto you can. You better live it up. You better take all the time you can to live as long as you can. Because when this life is over, you're going to find out that there is a life beyond this life. There is an eternal life. Everybody's soul lives in either heaven or in hell. And it should matter to us. It should matter to us. It should matter to us. It should matter to us when we're not in church and our neighbors who know that we're believers recognize we're not being consistent and we're not being dependable and we're not being faithful. It should matter to us when we sit down at the table and people are watching what we order. And they're thinking to themselves, is that really the way a Christian should be eating? Is that really the way a Christian should be behaving? It matters where you go because people want to know, is your Christianity real? Is it genuine? Is it the kind of Christianity that changes you? Or do you just look like a party Christian after you get saved and your life really has no change? Paul says, I spent 70 plus verses talking about meat offered to idol for one reason. Because more important 
than you exercising your liberties and your freedoms and you getting what you want and living like you want, more important than those things are the eternal souls of men and women. And I'll become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I'm willing to sacrifice and I'm willing to give up and I'm willing to avoid certain things. I'm willing to live in a way where my testimony isn't called into question. I'm willing to have a life that's different than the life of this world to recognize that Jesus makes a difference. And I wonder where are our tears? Where have my tears been? Where are your tears? I'm talking about your son. I'm talking about your daughter. I'm talking about your mother and your daddy and your grandmother and your granddaddy. I'm talking about that man or that woman has been the best friend in life to you. You've grown up together from elementary school. You've gone to school for the entirety of your life together, and now you're still the closest of friends. I'm talking about the man who stands next to you and likes to go fishing with you or likes to show up at the golf course with you. I'm talking about those people that are the closest of the close to us. When's the last time that you were ever so brokenhearted that you looked into their faces and your tears just began to roll down your cheeks because you knew that there's something not right in their spiritual lives? You can't tell me that people who have no interest in the things of God or in the work of God or in the church of God or in the, in the word of God, you can't tell me that there's not something wrong in those people's lives. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And the Lord will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. I never knew you. Can you imagine standing or sitting at the great white throne judgment watching it unfold in your son or your daughter or your mother or your daddy have his name called and they look in the Lamb's book of life and their name isn't written down? And then they begin to look in the books where the works are recorded because their judgment is going to be according to their works. The severity of the judgment will be according to their works. And the works begin be, are, folded, are folded out in the, in the presence of them. Can you hear them begging? But Lord, I know, I, I know somewhere in the past, somewhere in the past my name had to have been written in the Lamb's book. And the Lord opens it and says, no, your name isn't here. We saved a whole lot of dogs. We saved a whole lot of owls. Saved a whole lot of trees. We made sure a lot of people had food and a lot of people had clothes on their backs. They had a roof over their heads. They got a good education. All of those things are good. But those things aren't enough. 
Those things don't get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is trusting in Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. You take me back to the days when I was a young believer, when I came to faith as a young believer in Jesus Christ. My life changed. People who say, I am a Christian, but they have no desire and no change, you have at least the right to ask, what did you believe? And in whom did you believe? And what has happened if you say you have believed? Why is it we have children and teens that are growing up? Well, by the way, we have a lot of young people here that love God, that are serving God. But why are we living in a world where there are so many teens coming out of our churches that have no interest in the things of God? The psalmist said, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. When's the last time your heart was so broken for your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or your parents or your grandparents or your neighbors or your friends the tears welled up in your eyes because you began to understand and see them like God sees them in need of the eternal salvation that he alone can offer. When's the last time that you laid on your face in the floor and you prayed, oh God, save my son. Oh God, save my daughter. Save my mother. Save my daddy. Oh God, save my friends from that eternal fate of separation from you forever. Oh, God, hear my prayer. And you didn't pray it once, but you prayed it again and again and again and again and again. And you refuse to give up and you refuse to quit until you see your family and your friends come to Jesus. Oh, but preacher, I want to be able to have some wine on my table. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Such trivial, insignificant, unimportant kinds of things we elevate to eternal significance over the eternal souls of men and women. And why is it? Please, if you're a dog lover, please don't misunderstand me. I think we ought to save dogs too. Why is it you get so excited about saving dogs along the side of the street or buying them out of the pound, but you haven't wept one tear over your mother or your daddy or your son or your daughter or your friends or your neighbors that don't know Jesus? Why is it? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. The problem is, sometimes like my heart gets and like it had gotten, I see people, but I don't really see people. I see people, and I'm just doing my job. 
I'm just doing my job. I'm just going through the routine. I mean, I'm 65. I can retire in a year and a half or less than a year and a half if I wanted to. I don't want to. I could retire in a year or a year and a half. I could go on with life. I could set up at the beach if, Mother, if Mary would give me the money. I don't want to sit at the beach weeks on end and months on end when there are people around me that don't know Jesus. Why do any of us want to argue about the most insignificant and trivial matters when the souls of men and women hang in the balance? And how is it that we can be silent and be quiet and say nothing to anybody, not ever tell them our story of Jesus, not ever tell them about the greatest gift they could ever receive. Do you know what that is? That's the gift of eternal life. Oh, my friends, the only hope of mankind, that only, only hope that mankind has is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The grace of God by faith. Or John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Don't you think if God gave his Son because he cared about souls, that we ought to care about souls? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or, or Paul to the Philippian jailer when he asked the question, what must I do to be, to be saved? And he comes back in Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or John chapter 14 when Thomas asked him, Lord, we don't know the way and we're, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Listen to John 1.12. I read it from the Legacy English Bible. That's an updated New American Standard. But listen to it. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. I don't know about you. That's the greatest news on the planet. I've never had a beer. I've never had a, a glass of alcohol. I don't go to wild parties. You don't see me bellied up to a bar. Some of those things... I could have the freedom and the liberty to do if I wanted to do them. But the souls of men and women is more important than me exercising my rights and my privileges. It's more important that I make sure people recognize that Christ has changed me and Christ can change you. It's more important that people see that the love of God makes a difference in my life, and the love of God can make a difference in your life. We argue and complain and grumble and gripe about the most insignificant 
and unimportant things. While people's souls go to hell. Oh, church, we better beat it to this altar this morning. And we better get on our faces before God or stand here if you can't. And we better cry out for God to break our heart for what breaks his. And it isn't meat offered at the temple and whether you can eat it or not. It doesn't matter. What matters are the souls of the men and women who need to know Jesus Christ. And if limiting my liberties and limiting my freedoms makes it a better opportunity for me to share the gospel, then I'm going to limit my, my, my freedoms and I'm going to limit my liberties. I'll even go so far as to tell you something. If I thought playing golf would keep somebody from coming to Jesus Christ, I would never pick up a golf club again. What are you willing to sacrifice to see others come to faith in Jesus?